0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. My podcast partner, Patrick Ollinger and I took last week off a little bit of a spring break, so we appreciate your giving us the respite, and we appreciate your once again downloading into your feed today. Next Monday, as many of you know, is Patriots Day, and inside the world of endurance sports, that means it's Marathon Monday, Boston Marathon Monday, and of course, we're looking forward to that we have two people that are going to be featuring in race reports for the Boston Marathon. Uh, One athlete who's gonna be talking to us about the Boston Marathon itself, uh, and then another who has taken the Boston to Big Sur Challenge. And so we'll look forward to sharing those with you over the course of the next few weeks. But this week, Patrick and I decided to dip back to last year. We're going to rebroadcast the bulk of episode 41 of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast, which was our Boston Marathon preview. Now, we've lightly edited it. We took out uh, our predictions for the 2018 race, and we have left you with the more timeless parts of the podcast, talking about the course, talking about different scenarios, talking about the history, talking about the significance. So uh, we hope that it will be of use for you. and. And if you listened to it before, give it another listen. If you didn't listen to it last year, now's your chance. Thanks again for downloading this. And if you're running Boston, have fun. Good luck. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach
1: here in Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Patrick Olinger. I'm also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. No all-around good guy this week. <laughs> you've had because a bad week. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh.
0: Boston Marathon preview day. I know you've been looking forward to
1: this. Oh my gosh, yes! It's the best best day of the year for runners. <laughs> Our podcast. Is well, the, the, best the, day the marathon day? itself, not the podcast. The pre- this podcast, podcast is what you've been
0: waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Boston Marathon, you qualified. Great, fantastic. But this podcast is 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 why you really uh are a runner Mm -hmm. um but no you really have patrick's really been looking forward to to doing this preview like when we sat down a couple months ago and started mapping out okay when are we going to do this and we're talk about these various subjects what do we talk about it was like boston marathon preview boston marathon preview boston marathon preview that was like the one thing that you kept coming back to and i'm with that i think it's great um so i mean tell us i know we're going to get into the
1: history and the significance of it but i mean why so fired up about the boston marathon Sure. So, uh, I mean, obviously everybody knows, or a lot of people know about the um, kind of myth around the Boston Marathon. It is a very special race to, to a lot of runners. And for me specifically, it really holds an important place in my heart and in, and in kind of my running history because it is the race that brought me back to running. So mm-hmm. to kind of give you some background, um, I ran in high school and college, and I ran my last collegiate race uh, October of 2009 – and was like, that's it, I'm done. I mean, it was almost like a bad breakup. I threw away all the clothes, mm-hmm. like burned like all the pictures of myself running. Right. I was like, that's it, right. I'm done, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. And, you know, there was a several year stretch from from 2009 to 2013 where, you know, somebody may mention at work, hey, I, I hear you used to run. And it's like, yeah, I used to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, but not anymore, it's, you know, now I'm an adult and I, you know go to work, and I right. buy a house, and I you know, do the adult <laughs> things, try to be mature. Um, and then in 2013, uh, I was at work when uh, the bombing happened. And I remember my manager came in and said, yeah. there's been an explosion at the Boston Marathon, and I had several old college teammates who were running there. Mm-hmm. So I said, can I s- step away and see if they're okay? Mm-hmm. And I just remember going on to social media, going on to Facebook, and seeing... Messages from them saying, "Hey, we heard an explosion. We're okay. Don't really know what's going on," that kind of thing. And I remember spending the rest of that day watching CNN, and it was just a very surreal day for me. You know, like like most people my age, or really most you know people in in, in developed countries right now, I have almost become desensitized to digital desensitized to digital images of violence. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's what the news is a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But this was personal. I mean, I I didn't see it on, just on CNN. I saw it on my own Facebook feed. Yeah. I saw it with people I knew. Mm -hmm. And I remember that night, I just, I couldn't sleep, and I was like, you know, I'm just gonna, I don't really know what to do about this. Obviously, I can't help the poor people who were injured. And so, I did what I had always done when I had some loose ends in my life in previous years, and I just dug out my old running shoes, and I went for a run. Mm -hmm. And... On the run, I started to dream up this idea. I was like, you know what? I want to see if I can run the next one. Yeah. I want to be there. I want to be a part of the group that, that kind of shows that this is not going to end such a great tradition. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the, the bad guys didn't really win. Right. They don't have the final say. And I remember that first run, I made it three miles, <laughs> which is not quite a marathon. <laughs>
0: It felt like it, though.
1: It, fe- it sure did feel like it, but I was like, you know what? I want to do this. I want to give it one more chance, and I found a marathon in early September of that year. I qualified the day before the cutoff, so I literally ran the race Saturday and then submitted my time yeah. for registration that Sunday, Yeah, and was lucky enough, it was my first ever marathon. I was you know had a couple months to go from being a couch potato to a marathoner mm-hmm. i had never run more than like 18 or 20 miles before that race mm-hmm. and was lucky enough to qualify mm-hmm. and then the deal i made with myself was if i wanted to qualify for boston I run boston and then be done with being a runner again kind of that's mm-hmm. it i've kind of scratched that itch and moved on right but the more and more i started running and training so much of the joys of running came back. I, I tell people it was almost like reconnecting with an old friend and realizing yeah. there was no hard feelings anymore right. and just so many of the joys of running that, that I love that we talk about on this podcast just came back. I loved you know the, the the feeling you get at the end of a long run, that feeling of accomplishment. I love the that kind of brutal dance you do with your body where you're trying to push yourself right up to the limit, almost to, on the verge of injury, and then kind of bringing it back and recovering. I loved the the anxiety you felt going into the race. I loved the camaraderie you felt with the people you trained with and raced with. Yeah. And you know, from then I just kind of kept saying, all right, well, you know, now I've done this one, I'm going to do the next one. Yeah. So I've done it every year since then because to me this race has always been a celebration for how much I enjoy this sport, how thankful I am to have a sport like this in my life that can – continue running for, for so many years. And, um, every year I go back, I'm just thankful to have this in my life. And by this, I mean, you know, running, marathoning the, the endurance community. Yeah. Cause it really is a special part of my life. It was running was something I started when I was 15. So an important kind of, you know, stages of, of coming of age, it was always the arena where I poured a lot of myself into. It was a part of my life that you know, I was a very studious student, but if I got good grades, nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. But in running, like the results were in the paper, people mm-hmm. knew about it. Mm-hmm. It was the first kind of public arena where I had to kind of take a stand and and accomplish something, and it couldn't, yeah. you know, shy away from conflict. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, back to the Boston Marathon. I'm always look forward to this, not so much because I want to run fast, but because I just want to enjoy the experience. Yeah. And for those of you who have ever been to Boston during the marathon, it's unlike anything else because you'll just be on the subway and it doesn't matter who you are. Um, you'll just turn to the person next to you and start talking to them about their training. Yeah. And I always have interesting conversations with people at restaurants, on the train, on the walks to the expo, and I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody and they've said, oh, I have I have the experience you had. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what you should do. Try this gel instead of that one. Yeah. Or try these running shoes. And it's it's just... It's such a great community. Everybody who's on that starting line has made sacrifices. Yeah. Everybody there knows what it feels like to go for a long, cold run mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning when it's raining outside oh, and yeah. everybody else is maybe asleep or kind of drinking a cup of coffee on the porch and you're out there pounding the pavement or pounding the trails. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a race that's always been very special to me for that very reason yeah. Because it really kind of hides the communal aspect of our sport. And it was, like I said, the race that brought me back to the sport.
0: Yeah. For, for you, I mean, this would be your fifth time doing it. Mm-hmm. For you, it kind of exemplifies everything you like about running. Yeah. It sounds like. Um, and you have just positive associations. with mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it's all about. Yeah. Michael Wardian, who's, a, who's an ultra runner, pro ultra runner, um, who happens to live in my sister's neighborhood. Um, has, and he runs um, 50 races a year about half of which are marathons and about the other half of which are ultra marathons. Um, it's kind of, that's his gig. That's his niche. Mm-hmm. Um, just run a whole lot of races all the time. Um, he, uh, he says that running the Boston marathon, which he does every year feels like coming home. Mm-hmm. He says, it's kind of, it's kind of a homecoming every year. He sees a lot of the same people and, and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, what you said about, about running through the winter. Um, so I lived in new England the year that I did it. I did it in 2000. Yeah. And, um, um, I, um, I I very much felt like the reason why it was such a big deal, or one of the reasons why it was such a big deal in New England, was because everybody who was from New England who was running it had had to train through the New England winter, right? In order to be on the starting line, and it's been a tough winter for them this winter. Yes, it is. Um, and so, so there's there's a, a very high degree of of um hardiness that you have to have in order to be able to even make it to the starting line as a New Englander there in Boston. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I, uh, I was graduated from college in 1996, continued to run fairly consistently for less than a year after that. So into about 1997, um, got my graduate degree in, uh, in 1998, 1999, and then started running again in 1999. Um, and, and I was living in New Hampshire that year. I was working at a, at a pretty innovative school in Southern New Hampshire and, um, uh, I was coaching track and cross country while I was there, and one of my colleagues who knew I was a runner and 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 knew I had run in college, and I was only three years out from running at a very high level, um, said, "Are you going to run the Boston Marathon?" And this is in December, before Boston's in April, right? Um, and so it's also representative of how much it's changed over the course of just the past twenty years. Um, in December, she said, "Are you going to run the Boston Marathon?" And I said, "I don't have a qualifying time." And she says, well, you know, you're a good runner. Um, you can probably train for it and get a qualifying time. So I went on the website, and it said qualifying times have to be run by March 15th. And wow. So, so so I Googled, and that's a month before the race. Um, and so I Googled and found a race in Maryland the last weekend in February. Um, and so I, I um, signed up for that race. Uh, did a few long runs because I was still running some. Um, did, did, did a couple long runs there in the snow in New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, and went out and, and got my qualifying time at the Washington's birthday marathon in Greenbelt, Maryland. Um, and, um, I'm actually um,
1: familiar with Greenbelt, Maryland. I lived there for a year. Right on.
0: Um, and, uh, and they have a marathon there (laughs) (laughs) Um, last week in February. So I know, um, but, uh, got my qualifying time and then, uh, went on Monday, signed up for the Boston marathon and six weeks later I ran it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny because, um, I, I, I feel very fortunate that my, my colleague encouraged me to do it um, because I had no idea what a big deal it was in that community, in that area, in New England until the two weeks leading up to the marathon. I mean, so my alarm would go off in the morning, it'd be a morning show, and they'd be talking about the Boston Marathon on the morning shows. Right. Right. And there, there were features about it on the nightly news every night, on the local news every single night. I mean, it was a big deal. The only thing that I can compare it to... Is how much Atlantans were talking about the Olympics prior to the 1996 Olympics being in Atlanta. Right. That's the that's the only thing that, that that much buzz amongst people who are not running it I've ever seen. Right.
1: Um,
0: uh, that's the only comparable amount of buzz I've ever seen from from the larger community before. Because um, you know we get fired up about oh Publix is coming up and and you know Ironman Chattanooga and stuff like that. People outside of that don't really know about Ironman Chattanooga. You right. know? But 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 everybody throughout New England. Um, talks about that. Um, And then, of course, ran the race, ended up having a pretty good race, as it turned out somehow, Uh, just a bunch of leftover fitness from when I was in college, I guess. Um, But uh, as I was running the race, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, I didn't realize how much lore was related to the Boston Marathon that I had internalized by reading Runner's World and stuff like that Mm -hmm. over the course of the the previous five or six years that I've been a runner Mm -hmm. until I actually ran it. And I was like, oh, this is Wellesley. Oh, these are the Newton Hills. Oh, that's Dick and Rick, Ho- Rick Hoyt, right. you know, the, the, the forerunners to, to Brent and Kyle Pease, uh, who uh, he always used to put. So I passed them <laughs> around around mile four or five, you know. Um, so, yeah, just uh, incredible race. You know, I, I often will say um, Kona lives up to the hype. Mm-hmm. Boston Marathon lives up to the hype. New York City Marathon lives up to the hype. Uh, but Boston lives up to the hype. Yeah. yeah. You've heard great things about it, and it's great. Mm-hmm. it really is um you will not be disappointed Sistine chapel lives up to the hike yeah grand canyon lives up to the hike boston marathon lives up to the hike yeah um so i'll oh, go ahead
1: and i can say so for those of you who are maybe who have been trying to qualify and you're close and it's you've gone through a tough winter of, of training which it has been it's been pretty cold especially even here in atlanta <laughs> you know keep digging and keep trying because it is worth it when you get there oh yeah Totally. Um, and it's worth it because even if you don't have necessarily a great race or a PR race, it's still a special event. Mm-hmm. And you know when you're running, this is not just a race. Yeah,
0: And what you and I are talking about, particularly like what you're we talking about, um, like I said, Mike Wardian feels the same way, that it exemplifies everything and feels like homecoming for him. Mm-hmm. It, there are thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people in the race, and the majority would say the same thing. Yeah. Um it's a very special race for a lot a lot a lot of people. Um and I think I always say that that um I think it represents a really good goal yeah. for for people who are pretty fast and who are dedicated and and um who are not going to qualify for the Olympic trials. Right. You know. And who who and who might not be able to qualify for Kona. Um right. because it's hard 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 to qualify for Kona. Right. Um but but it's a good goal to, to get that Boston qualifying time and to to uh, to be on the starting line, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a good reach goal for a lot of people and it's again it's one that if you attain it it's worth attaining because it's a cool race yeah yeah um, for sure it's also an old race so there's a lot of like I mentioned there's a lot of lore around it um, the Boston Marathon it was one of the first marathons. Um, People were kind of dabbling with these ultra endurance events in the late 1800s, and then when the Olympics were revitalized um, or revived in 1896 um, by Pierre de Coubertin, um, one of the things he wanted to recapture with this whole kind of neo-Grecian feeling of the uh, of, of the Olympics um, was was. Uh, to, to, to recreate the run of Pheidippides from way back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. And so so one of the, if not the very first marathon, and certainly the first thing to be called a marathon, uh, was at the actually the, the 1896 Olympics, the first Olympics of the modern era. Um, and, and because it was so successful, and it was won by a Greek guy named Spiridon Lewis, which just made it that much better. Um, now but, that is a name. So, right? Yeah. Good Lord. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely one I don't ever have to look up. I remember that one, Spiridon Lewis. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the... Uh, Good name for... Hmm. Anyway, um, uh, the the Boston Marathon actually started the following year in 1897. So April of 1897, less than the year after that Olympic Marathon, that first mm-hmm. Olympic Marathon, it started. And they've had one every single year since then. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things, including the Olympics themselves, took time off during World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, there was not a 1940 Olympics, 1944 Olympics. Um, but the Boston Marathon continued unabated. Uh, through both World Wars, through the Vietnam War,
1: um, all the way through the new millennium, Um,
0: they had their and hundreds. Just okay.
1: to give you an idea of how rare that is, I mean, we're talking the Boston Marathon continued through the wars, the Kentucky Derby continued through the wars, the Westminster Dog Show continued through the wars. No, oh, that's important. Yeah, but and I'm missing one more because I don't have it in front of me. But pretty much everything else did not. Right? Super Bowl wasn't invented yet. World Series kaput. Right. I mean, think about that. I yeah. mean, the World Series didn't make it through the wars. Right. But the Boston Marathon did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The Boston Marathon, it's, a, it's the world's oldest continuously running marathon. And it's the second longest running race. Longest running running race. So second longest continuous
1: second... What am I trying to say, Patrick? You're trying to say that it's the second longest continuous race. Because the, the, the race that has been running the longest yeah. is the Buffalo... is Turkey it, Trot. Turkey Trot. Yeah. And the crazy part is the Turkey Trot was like... I believe a month before the original yeah, yeah. Boston Marathon. Yeah, no, like no, literally so, they beat him
0: by weeks. So so it was a turkey trot, so so it might have been around Thanksgiving. So it was Thanksgiving. I'm going to go ahead and give Buffalonians uh, the, the. So it wasn't the, a month, but so, it was so, like the couple of months. But yeah, months less than a before. year. Yeah. yeah. and And. Kudos to Buffalo, the 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 progenitors of the turkey trot, man, because that's the longest running race in the United States. Um, uh, and second place is the Boston Marathon. Yeah, uh, yeah. The reason why I'm getting hung one up on words, sound like the other one. yeah, right. The reason why I'm getting hung up on words is because longest running race. You see what I'm saying? Like it makes it feel like the distance of the race, right? And we're talking about how long the race has continually been staged mm-hmm. um anyway uh in 1924 they moved the start to where it is today and and the the town green in hopkinton it's a point-to-point course um so you start 26.2 miles from the center of boston way out in hopkinton um the uh the iaaf uh, a few years before that um had standardized the marathon distance at 26 miles and 385 yards um, and, and so they moved it back a little bit to Hopkinton and literally that's where the start has been. And the course has not changed since 1924. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple of minor, uh, uh, changes because of construction and stuff like that, um, over the course of the past close to 100 years. Um, but it's been the same ever since then. So how cool is that? I mean, you know, you think yeah. about the, 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 legends that have won that race and, and all those of you who are running it are going to be running the same course that all those legends ran. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1970 is when they first injected qualifying standards. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was a big running boom in the 1960s, as as many of you are probably well aware, and into the 1970s. 197 people uh, ran the race in 1960. Um, wow. And then there was 447 people in 1965, so you know, it tripled in size. Um, and then there was 1,342 by 1969. And at that point, the Boston Athletic Association was like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. We've got over 1,000 people now. We need to institute some standards here because they were worried that it was going to compromise the quality of the race if it got too big, which is hilarious by two thousand eighteen lens. Right. And, you know, so many thousands upon thousands of people run races and they were worried about it being over a thousand. Um so anyway, they put in um nineteen seventy they said you have to run under four hours in order to qualify. Um a year later in nineteen seventy one they said you have to run three thirty in order to qualify. Um and they said I think they had a different one for Masters. Um in uh nineteen seventy six they lowered it to three hours and then three thirty for masters for people over forty. And then in nineteen eighty they dropped it down to two fifty. Um, for anybody who's under 40 um and then over the course of the next couple of decades they basically get more and more specific right um and that's kind of where we are now is that 40 to 40 40 to 44 has a different standard than 45 to 49 right. um, by like five minutes um and so so there's multiple standards now for all the different ages where it used, it used to be under 40 over 40
1: right um, and then, i mean they specify for gender age yeah yeah,
0: yeah. um speaking of gender I um, uh, mean, you're probably well aware. 1966 is when the uh, the the first woman to to, to run it was uh, a, a woman named Roberta Gibb uh, won. Um, she uh, was not signed up, um, and or no, she was signed up and and she went through, but but um, uh, she crossed the finish line and 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 was celebrated. And then the next year, there was a woman named Catherine Switzer um, who signed up as K A Switzer um, and, and she sometimes is mistakenly thought to have been the first woman ever to run the Boston marathon. Um, and it's her that there's the famous picture of the Boston marathon director jumping out on the course and trying to tackle her off the course. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there, there's that picture of her. Um, women weren't officially added for about another three or four years until 1970 or 1971 there. Um, and now of course, you know, not quite half the field, but close to half the field is, is, is women. So yeah, good stuff. Um, and again, this is all history. I feel like Boston, more than other races, I feel like you feel that history. Yes. When you're running it.
1: Uh, the starting line in Hopkinton, you're surrounded by all these Cape Cod-style homes. Yeah. And they they look like they were built about the time the first marathon was run there. And I don't mean that like in a derogatory way. I mean, if you've ever been to Boston, yeah. it's a city that... I mean, first of all, like when I first got to Boston and got off the plane, one of the first human beings I saw was a guy dressed in a Revolutionary War outfit <laughs> screaming about the red coats. And he was just going, I mean. He was just a guy. Right? He, he was just a guy. He yeah, wasn't, wasn't even a paid tour guide. Um, but the history of Boston. If you, like, for example, we're here in Atlanta, and when we say Atlanta history, we mean, like, the 1996 Olympics. Like, it's all captured on... It's it's it's
0: civil rights movement forward. Yeah,
1: right. Um, And even then, there's almost a gap after the civil rights movement. But in Boston, you just, you feel the history. The buildings are older. Um, They really have done a great job of preserving a lot of the historical sites. Yeah. So everything about it, you just feel the history of the city. Yeah, I totally agree. And in some ways of the country and Mm -hmm. of the race and the sport. Yeah. I mean, because like you mentioned about how, um, you know, the first woman ran in, what would you say, 1966? Yeah. I mean, that was not that long ago. Right. And you kind of, when you go to the race, they remind you of that. Mm -hmm. They have that in the expo. They have Mm -hmm. generally, like, you know, booths that kind of remind you about, like, the history of women in the Boston Marathon. They Mm -hmm. have... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of yeah. a lot of reminders about where this race has been and where it's going.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. I think that that, um, and I think that's twofold. I think that's both a push and a pull. I think on the, on the one hand, when you're in Boston, as you suggest, when you're in Boston. There's more of a historical feel in Boston. Right. You know, Atlanta, and I like Atlanta a lot, and this is home and I've, I've always enjoyed Atlanta, but Atlanta has more of a cutting edge type feel to me. Yes. That, 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 that we're at the forefront, we're moving forward, you know, technology, new stuff, latest styles, that kind of thing. It feels right. very cutting edge. Um, Boston doesn't feel cutting edge always, it often feels historical. Yes. Um, and that's just sort of the ethos of the place. And so so you're already kind of in that mindset when you're there and you and you're going to bring that with you when you go into the marathon itself. But then in addition Boston knows that they feel that way and so they play it up like you're saying Big time. um and, and I mean all
1: their sports teams are the Patriots right. the New England Revolutionaries I think it's the <laughs> soccer team or revolution I think right. yeah. yeah yeah I mean so so they, I mean
0: they they, they, they they play that up you go you go in the Nike town in Boston at least it used to be this way and and there's a map of the Boston Marathon course in Nike town and it's like it's like the layout of the place it's right. like it's like the store's theme Right, um, and of course, there's the big sign with Hopkinton and the Newton Hills and all that sort right. of thing, you know, and 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 Wellesley at the halfway mark with all the screaming girls and 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 all that stuff. Um, like those things are literally the theme of the entire store, 365 days a year, not in the month leading up to the race, you know. Um, and 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 so yeah, the race recognizes that history is an important part of of that area, um, and that that extends to their approach to marketing and, and talking about the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about strategy. So so we talked about the way the race unfolded, and we talked last week um, on this podcast about how, okay, the way the race unfolds, that matters for the pros up front, and it matters more in team sports, um, where, they're, where they're having to, to directly confront their competitors. But for the vast majority, 99% of the people running the Boston Marathon, including most people we know running the Boston Marathon, including you... Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of competing against yourself, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 twenty five thousand individuals um, mm-hmm. that are out there running that race, right? Um, and so, um, given that you can you can and you should have a strategy, and you should enact that strategy. You should have a plan, and you should you should enact that plan. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you need to kind of keep in your plan there. If you're if you're running the Boston Marathon, why don't you kick us off?
1: Sure. So I'll say first of all, um, a couple of weeks ago we did a podcast on marathon planning in general. And in many ways, this is kind of the the, the brother or sister podcast to that in which we kind of go through and talk about planning that's specific to the Boston Marathon itself and what some of the specifics of the Boston Marathon, um, mean for you when you're planning out your race, when you're forming your strategy for the race and what it means for you as an individual runner, because it is a lot different than most races for than for like running the Publix Marathon, for example, logistically, it's different, um, you the you're going to be surrounded by a lot of people running fast you're going to have crowd support from the start all the way through the finish and that's actually something to get used to five hundred thousand people show up right so we're just going to this is kind of the companion podcast to that one and we're going to talk about some things that are specific to the boston marathon and what you need to think about when planning for your own boston marathon and the first thing that's really different that, that most people are not used to if they are if they're fast enough to qualify for the boston marathon they're probably also not used to starting a race at 10 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. like boston does i think it's actually like 10 18 or something yeah, I was gonna say, it's of. a little bit later than that for, for a lot of people yeah. <laughs> kind of it's kind of something like that and i could just share a story from from my own personal experience so my first ever boston was in 2014 it was my second ever marathon and the way it worked was, I had seven years of experience as a five k, mile, ten k guy on the track. Right. And as you know, when you're running on the track, the main inhibitor is how much oxygen you can get into your lungs and into your legs. Fueling isn't really that big. Like yeah. no one, no one has a right. gel during five k <laughs> on the track. Um, <laughs> just that, just that concept is laughable. Yeah, like like the idea
0: that somebody's gonna gonna take a gel in the middle of their their fifteen hundred.
1: So I went into the the race. It was my second ever marathon. And I really didn't plan out the gel situation or the eating situation. And so I remember I think I had my breakfast in the hotel room at like 6 a.m. Because you got to be at, this, at the Boston Commons get on the bus and go to the starting line really early. Like long before the 10 a.m. start. And then I went about another four hours of not eating anything. And then I had about one gel during the marathon because I was training by myself. And I didn't really know other people doing marathons. So I just thought, oh, I'll bring this just in case I get hungry on the run. And I had the bonk to end all bonks. I mean, <laughs> the, the final ten k was just an absolute death march. And then when I looked back, and then when I remember I ended the race, and they gave me, I think, some like some candy or something. And all of a sudden, the lights came back on, and I was right. okay again. But the real lesson learned is when you're one of the thing to think about when you're when you're planning for Boston is with such a late start. So yeah. Like for example, at twenty fourteen, I went from like six a.m. to like. One o'clock in the afternoon right. of having one gel.
0: Right.
1: That's not good. And, and, and that's in, not good and if in you're. In the meantime, you ran a marathon. Right. That's not good if you're watching <laughs> Netflix, much much <laughs> less running a marathon. So you really need to plan out the fueling situation. Yeah. You know that is the one race where wake up and have a pretty full breakfast. Now mm. not bacon and eggs, obviously, mm. but have a few bagels, have bananas, have apples, mm. and you know it's plan that out in your training. Have a morning where you wake up and eat a relatively hearty breakfast before your long run so you can kind of know what that feels like and what works for you and what doesn't. And then I would say, too, pack some snacks to have on the bus ride over and in the few hours that you're waiting at Athlete's Village because, like I said, it's a long time. Even if you weren't running a marathon, even if you just had to go through the motions and stay in Athlete's Village Mm -hmm. um, for most of the day, that would still be a very long day to not have nutrition.
0: Yeah. I feel like we so we talked in generalities a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about race prep about this notion of of uh, of, of late morning starts or mid morning starts yeah. right and 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 I mentioned how the New York City Marathon starts a little bit later uh-huh. and so it takes so long to get from your hotel which is near the finish line down to Staten Island where the starting line is the Boston Marathon is another good example of this right it's a point to point marathon um, that starts in a little bitty small town outside of.
1: The, the, the marquee town outside and of if, boston if you haven't done the marathon since the bombing it's not just driving the bus 26 miles out mm-hmm. it's driving the bus 26 miles out and going through several security checkpoints all right um so it's not just yeah it's it's not a quick ride yeah yeah and so and, and as i mentioned
0: uh, a couple weeks ago so you, you not only need to think about it in terms of fueling what you do mm-hmm. you also need to think about it in terms of clothing yeah. Um, because, you know, it could be a cool morning and, and so you need to wear some extra layers and play, plan to shed them. But you also need to think about it in terms of of your mental state. Yes. And so, so many of us are accustomed to, okay, so you get up, you have a little breakfast, you make your way to the trails, you run, you do your long run, or, you know, you do a race. And so you get up, you go and you get your number at the race, you wait a few minutes in your car, you listen to some hype-up music, you do your little warm-up and then you then you go out and you and you, you race your race, right? Whole thing takes less than 30 minutes. Um this one, you're going to get up, you're going to have breakfast, you're going to start thinking about your race from the moment, you, the moment you wake up. It's going to be the main thing on your mind. It's still going to be four hours before you actually begin putting one foot in front of the other in the race. Right. And so you need to prepare for that kind of, of, of mental challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not psych yourself out, not get nervous, not waste a whole bunch of energy you know, fidgeting prior to the race. Um, because it's still going to be a little while from the moment you wake up until the race is actually run. Exactly. Um, and so so it's important to kind of visualize that, um, that kind of, that sort of mental relaxation that you need to make sure that you're doing um, with that mid-morning start. Um, there's no warm-up,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, since I just mentioned warm-up. Um, I think the elites do have actually in a warm-up area, um, but uh, but for most folks, that means, you know, running the first uh, uh, little bit of the race at uh, slower than goal pace. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the actual pace and all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, sure. So the first thing to know, so first of all, one of the things I've noticed is whenever I tell, whenever I meet somebody who's doing the Boston Marathon for the first time, one thing I've heard over and over again is they say, I'm looking forward to this because it's net downhill, so it's going to be fast. Mm-hmm. That is incorrect um, in terms of it. Or that is, I would say, that does not bear itself in, in terms of um, previous results. It's not going to make you faster. Right. And the reason is, even though it is a net downhill, and I think there's roughly a 480 foot or so drop mm-hmm. in elevation, most of that drop in elevation is in the first three to four miles. Mm-hmm. And it is a very crowded field. And you can't really use that downhill because you are packed in there like you're at a concert. So you can't open up the stride and kind of stride down the hill. Mm-hmm. You just got to kind of be part of the uh, the cow herd and just or the horse herd and just kind of let it flow. Mm-hmm. So in terms of race strategy, um, you know, one thing people also ask is, you know, should I try to run even splits? Should I try to bank time on the downhill so I can be prepared for the for the uphill? And first and foremost, and I think this should be number one on everybody's mind, is there is no struggle quite like the struggle at the end of Boston <laughs> if you don't have anything left. Yeah. I can speak from experience. Yeah. Every marathon is unforgiving. This one is especially unforgiving mm-hmm. um, for several reasons. One, there's a lot of hills at the end and it's not one big one it's not just heartbreak hill it's a series of hills mm. and it's it it kind of can extend your wall a lot of people hit the wall at mile 20 but if, if you've gone out too fast mm. you can hit it much sooner because the hills start much sooner yeah so uh, and that can be pretty unforgiving to be at mile 17 and not have anything left yeah. for another nine miles yeah. second you're gonna be surrounded by a lot of fast people so emotionally, when you have people kind of flying by you, a lot of people, it can be pretty unsettling.
0: Plus, you're going to have a lot of people around you that are running stupid. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of people around you that, that I mean, because like, like, like you just said, uh, and not to jump all over what you just said, it literally drops 300 feet in the first four miles. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's significant downhill, but, it, but, it's, but it's slight enough to where, to where you're not going to be breaking Right, right, and so 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 you can you, you're just gonna be running faster, mm-hmm. um, and so people get out there and and they're fired up and they've done their training and and they've pointed themselves towards Boston and they have all this emotion like here we go Boston Marathon and they tear ass through the first five k of the race and then it flattens out and then they go up the big hill at mile twenty one, mm-hmm. and and they are crushed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for people from the Atlanta area, um, I, I often will compare the Boston Marathon. Um, to the Peachtree Road Race in mm-hmm. terms of, of um, in terms of profile, because the Peachtree Road Race also goes out with a net downhill over the course of the first 5k, mm-hmm. and then miles four and five you go uphill. And people will talk about oh Heartbreak Hill, Heartbreak Hill. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, it's so incredible. In the Peachtree Road Race, it's not that hard. It's just that everybody's gone out too hard in the first half. Same thing with with the with the the Boston Marathon Heartbreak Hill. It it, it basically climaxes at mile 21. Yeah. Um And so, you know, I remember when I first got to the top of it, when I ran it back in 2000, I was like, that's it? Right. You know? and Because as a hill, if you come from a hilly area, it's not a particularly hard hill. But it's really hard given that, A, it's at the 21-mile mark of the race. Um, and, B, more importantly, so many people go out too fast in that first 5K, and that's where it catches up with them. Yeah. Um,
1: and it catches up in a very cruel way. Yeah. Absolutely. Understandably. Um, so, anyway... So to kind of to, to kind of backtrack a bit. Um, so we talked about you know the late start you really need to plan for that mentally, mm-hmm. you know, and in terms of a feeling perspective. Mm-hmm. From a general perspective, kind of the second big tip is to, to keep the hills in mind mm-hmm. when planning this race, when yeah. planning out what you want your pacing to feel like, right. what you want what your pacing to be, because. Um, once you get the hills, you can't go back and say, "Okay, that was too fast. Let me right. let me, or I overestimated my ability. Let me go back." Right. So, what that means is, in the early miles, is go out relaxed and just. Try to keep a level head about you. Mm-hmm. And generally on this podcast, we talked a lot about running for by feel. Mm-hmm. I would actually recommend not running by feel the first four mm-hmm. miles or so because you're going to feel great. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. Yeah. It's going to be downhill. Yeah. Everybody around you is yeah. going to be going fast. But this one, I would say it's almost good to run at your goal marathon pace for the first four miles mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. Knowing that, yeah, that's going to be a much slower effort than your goal marathon effort. Mm-hmm. But it almost helps keep you, um, or for me at least, it's always kept me kind of level-headed. Yeah. And if, if that was too, that or that is too slow, I can always make it up later in the race. The marathon's a long race. You're not going to, no race is ever won in the first couple miles, but they can be lost. Yeah. And they're lost by going too fast, not by going too slow. Right,
0: right. No, <laughs> certainly. Um, I think that the, um... I, I think I would probably tweak your advice just a little bit, um, even though I agree with you in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I would say it's okay to go out a little bit fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if your goal is to run 8-minute pace, mm-hmm. and, and that is your goal. So so that's right about 3.30 for the marathon, right? Um, if your goal is to run 8-minute pace, you're, you're opening miles shouldn't really be any faster than 750. Yes. You can expect them to be a little bit fast, right? Um, but, if, but if but if you're like, all right, here we go, and your first three miles are, are seven flat for each of them, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, well, downhill miles, banking time. Um, that's a dumb strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and you're going to pay for that later on. Um, you have to, have to, have to um, uh, hold back in those first few miles. Um, like you say, I think that... that there's so many different factors that, that, that are contributing in those first three miles to people going out too fast. The emotions of the race, the other people who are going out too fast around you and are all running away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, the crowds are there. Um, um, just all of those things kind of conspire together. And then, of course, the downhill. All those things conspire together and create this this snowball effect that, that, that inspire people to run too fast in that, those opening miles. And like you say, it's devastating.
1: Yeah, and you're almost kind of anxious because it's been such a long morning.
0: Yeah. You almost feel like you're at the end of the race yeah, at the starting Exactly. Line. It's another factor I didn't even mention, but you're totally right about that. I couldn't agree more. Um, and so all of those things, um, I think I think I would say the takeaway is be aware of that in those opening miles and don't start too fast. Oh, hey, we got a visitor. Hey, buddy. Give us a minute. Thanks. All right. So, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Um You'd be shocked that you know I have twin sons, and that's the first time in three years that they've actually uh, uh, busted on the podcast. So Yeah, must they're, be lunchtime. Well, they, 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 it's right over here on their birthday, and so they like to talk a lot about their birthday presents and stuff here. But anyway. Um, so I do the
1: same, and I'm not four anymore, so <laughs> I, can't, I can't blame them. <laughs> All
0: right, so downhill for that first app, Take it easy. Splits, I would say, should hover around your goal.
1: Yeah, and um, I would say, too, um, another thing to be aware of is... So the, the first three miles or so, I mean, you're packed. It's almost like running in the middle of a rock concert mm-hmm. where you don't have assigned seating. Like right. it's your elbow to elbow. There's a lot of there's people. You've been to a rock without.
0: concert where there's assigned seating? Um, what kind of lame rock concerts are you going? Well, to? Well,
1: the opposite. I've never actually been to one, so I'm the guy who's <laughs> trying to like figure out what it's actually like. <laughs> but anyways, I mean, it's all- okay. Well, I guess assigned seats. You like, think the
0: row you're in. All, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. But I was totally thinking. About, I was like conflating a rock concert in like a ninth grade classroom. Yeah. Anyway, okay, my bad. Um, Keep going.
1: Anyways. So there's a lot going on. I would say in general, stick to one side and and be calm. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is, so when you run the marathon, they're gonna have a mile, or they're gonna have water and Gatorade at every single mile marker. It's gonna be on the right side, and then it's gonna be on the left side. And they, I mean, they've done this before, obviously, as we've (laughs) we've discussed. So it's very well planned out. So you'll see it on the right side, and then there's nothing on the left. Mm -hmm. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. The the Water on your left is coming up once the, the water on the right yeah. ends. Yeah, And you will see a lot of people burning a lot of energy because they'll see the water and they'll literally run horizontally from the crowd and run people over and, mm-hmm. and get run over to try to get to that water the first couple miles. Yeah. So A, be calm. You know, know that the water is going to be there for you. Mm-hmm. And also kind of keep your head on the swivel because there will be some nutso's. Right, right You know. Yeah. Right. running you know running from from side to side right and then another thing i would say is a lot of people you know you do kind of have to just go along with the flow mm-hmm. and if the if the flow is is not exactly what you're going to run pace wise that's i would say that's okay as long as it's not too fast that's okay mm-hmm. because it is infinitely better to just stay relaxed the first three miles than to be that net so burning energy zigzagging You know, panicking about, you know, I've fallen off my pace. Oh, I'll never be able to make it up. Right. You know, because you're going to burn a lot more energy, not just physically, but also emotionally. Yeah. If you've kind of burned through your reserves the first couple miles or so. For sure. So pick a side, stay on that side, and kind of keep your head on a swivel and know some people are going to be a little overexcited. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Just don't be one of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stick to your nutrition plan. Stick, stick to your pacing plan. Right. Now So, so let's get beyond the first 5K here. Um, after that, um, it kind of rolls a little bit, but mm-hmm. I mean really once you get to about the four mile mark, um, it stays, it, if you're from a hilly area, if you're from Atlanta, it's going to be far less hilly than any run you do right. for, for the next long while. Right. Um, and that's good. Um, right. You know, that's fast. And so, so so that's a positive thing. It lets you lock into that kind of rhythm. But that being said, there's some some miles that have a slightly more uphill and some miles that have slightly more downhill. Now, again, if you're accustomed to running in a hilly area, this should not really throw you off all that much. Um, you know, again, if your goal is 8-minute pace, okay, you had a little bit more uphill in that mile, so it was 8.10. Okay, a little bit more downhill in that mile, so it was 7.55. Is You, you can expect some variance in your pace there. As long as it's hovering around your goal, you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you should expect every single one of your miles to be eight flat no this is not chicago yeah this is not chicago this is not dubai right you know this is this is not a course that 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 favors these exact same splits for every single mile um um, you know the new york city marathon is, is the same way there are some miles that have some uphills, some miles that have some downhills um the the in in boston you have your goal pace but if you pass through and you say oh that was five seconds slow don't freak out and speed up um um, but likewise, if it's five minutes fast, don't freak out and slow down. As long as you're locked in to, to that proper effort level, you can expect your pace uh, to hover around those numbers. All right. So then you get to mile 20. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you take first of all, you take a turn around. You, there's one turn on the entire course. Yeah. And it's right around mile 17 or mile 18, right? Yeah. Um, well, there's two turns. There's just a couple in the last half mile. Right. Uh, right. But you take that one right turn when you're in Newton, right there in front of the firehouse, um, and you start going up and down some hills, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's right there on 16 miles, actually. Um, and you start going up and down some hills. It's so called Newton Hills. You go up one, then you kind of flatten out, and you go up another, and then you kind of come down a little bit, and you go up another short one, and then it flattens out. And then the big one uh, around mile
1: 20 to 21 there. Um, and that's Heartbreak Hill. Talk about your experience with Heartbreak Hill. So my ex- my experience with Heartbreak Hill was that if it were just Heartbreak Hill, it wouldn't even be that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But it is one of many hills you're going to see. Yeah. Starting in those later stages of the race, mm-hmm. and then that's the final culmination. Yeah. It's almost like taking a punch, a few punches from a boxer. You may be able to take a few, but then that last and, and then that the Heartbreak last, Hill is almost the last knockout uh, blow uh, that, if that, you're not that, prepared. That's, that's the roundhouse, right? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Um, and so what I would say is just be prepared mentally. I was, for for me personally, I go into the race knowing the race starts at mile 12 and then it really intensifies about 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. And so the Mm -hmm. first 10 to 12, I'm enjoying the race, kind of, you know, waving the crowd and kissing babies to some degree. (laughs) Um... But then 16 to 17, that's when you need to start the Eye of the Tiger yeah. kind of mentality. Yeah. And, and fittingly,
0: like I said, the Newton Firehouse is right there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll probably be playing Eye of the Tiger when you make that one turn, that one right turn to start by the Hills. Um, the year that I did, it was year 2000. This is actually an uh, uh, indication that they were playing Rockefeller Skank by Fatboy Slim. All right. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And and the woman I was dating at the time really liked that song, and so it reminded me of her, so it put me in a positive state of mind, I guess. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, uh, so yeah, you'll go up those hills, and then, like you say, I, you know, and like I said a few minutes ago, you get onto Heartbreak Hill, you run to the top of Heartbreak Hill, and literally, mile 21 is at the crest of the hill. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember when I crested that hill, I was like, that's it? Because I'd run so many more hills in the right. an area and everything, and I'd run some really hard hills in my life. And at that point, I was kind of psyched. I was like, that's it? All right. Hey, here we go. Let's roll on down to the... And and sure enough, you pretty much roll on down to the finish from that point. Yes. Um, so, so you crest at, at 21 feet uh, or 21 miles. Um, and that is the high point of the whole second half of, of the entire race. Um, and then it kind of screams downhill for about three miles and then flattens out for about the last two miles there. Um, the, and let me say this too. Yeah.
1: The You win those final hills in the first 16 miles of the race. So oh, one yeah. you know talk about how people think that the net downhill will make it a fast race. but one of the things that makes Boston such a difficult race to run well is you're essentially running downhill for however many miles and then um you start going up. So it's down mm-hmm. and then up. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're essentially pounding all the power out of your quads mm-hmm. and then right when you have nothing left to drive home and to really kind of you know, kick it into that that fourth gear. Oh, by the way, here's a series of hills, for five <laughs> miles or so. Yeah. So that's what can be so devastating. So the biggest piece of advice I could say with Boston is run smooth on the downhills, mm-hmm. so you have enough to power through the uphills mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. And if you see somebody who's charging the uphills, because um, there's like there's like slight bunny hops or mm-hmm. so the first fifteen or sixteen, mm-hmm. let them go. Because yeah. trust me, they will be. Plenty more where that came from. Yeah, you'll see him again um, later on in the in the race. So the, the, one of the big focuses so we talk about the first few miles. The focus is on not going out too fast. Mm-hmm. For me, then I always focused on in the middle of the race running smooth on the downhills, so I can have enough power to drive the uphills, mm-hmm. miles 16 to 21 mm-hmm. or so. Because yeah. once you hit those hills, there's no turning back. Yeah. You know, there's no saying, oh, well, I messed up. Let me see if I can readjust. Right. Because they're going to keep coming. Yeah. Um, my, my my macro advice
0: for the Boston Marathon is to say that, that, that you keep it under control for yeah. those first 16 miles. And and you you, you treat those first 16 miles as, as almost like a warm-up right. for, for those hills. Then you hit the first hill, you turn it from 5 to 6. Right. Second, second hill, you turn from 6 to 7. Third hill, 7 to 8. Fourth hill, you know, Heartbreak Hill is a fourth hill. Yeah. Eight to eight point five. Right. Right? And you crest that hill and you're at eight point five, and at that point you only have five miles to go, you keep it at eight point five. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And and at that point you're gonna speed up a lot because now you're going you're screaming downhill for the last five miles, right? For the last eight K. Um, but but that's kind of always what I say is that, that that you hold back, hold back, hold back, and then you start turning gradually turning up your effort over the five miles of those hills climaxing with heartbreak hill and then you just keep that effort high because at that point by the time you get to the other side of those hills, there's only five miles left to go in the race. And, and I
1: would say too at that point, if you run the race smart, you're gonna blow by a lot of people oh, again. Yeah. yeah. So for sure. kind of so pick people out and be like, I'm gonna catch that guy in red, I'm gonna catch that guy in orange. Yeah. You know, ahead of you. For sure. Um because there are a lot of people that are gonna be blowing up. Yeah. You know, usually around heartbreak heartbreak hill.
0: Yeah. You know, and this is this is you know, you mentioned how 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 Boston Marathon exemplifies all the things you love about running. I think it also kind of exemplifies a marathon, which yeah. is totally fitting because because it's the longest running marathon in the world. But in every marathon, you want to take it easy for the first part. You want to gradually turn up your effort between between you know, fifteen and twenty miles, and then you want to um, you know hang on, running as hard as you can there for the last five or six miles. That's essentially the strategy for every marathon. But it's it's crucial. In the Boston Marathon, because it's so easy to mess up, right? <laughs> because you because it because because the course and the emotion and the competitors all encourage you to go out too fast. Yep. and then right at that place where you're trying to turn up the effort, there's hills, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then and then if you've saved something, you can really blaze that last eight uh, that last eight k that last five miles. You can really blow through that. Um, you know, when I when I did it back in the day, I I had a very fast last. 10k Mm -hmm. um and it was in part because i I had jogged for the first half of the race and it was in part because um i was just so fired up to get on the other side of of heartbreak hill yeah um you know and so so i really feel like boston is in so many ways the quintessential marathon Mm -hmm. um and and accordingly your strategy should be the quintessential marathon strategy right
1: Yeah. yeah and to your point it's funny so i told you i made the mistake in 2014 and blew up in 2015 i said all right i will never do that again <laughs> and i ended up running the 10 the final 10k like 20 30 seconds a mile faster than mm. the, the preceding 20 miles yeah. because yeah. once you get over that hill you yep. know it's amazing a how exciting it is yeah. that's when you can kind of finally look around and say i'm at the boston marathon this is fantastic <laughs> i'll let loose um Combined with the adrenaline of, of, of being able to pass people. Yeah. Um,
0: and the and the finish line being metaphorically in sight. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And that's another good thing you point you, you bring up. So a lot of people talk about the sitco sign, right? When you see yeah. the Sitka sign, you're almost there. Mm-hmm. When you see the Sitka sign, you are almost there in the same way that like, oh, I'm four miles out and I'm almost at the finish line. <laughs> like you see it for a yeah. while. Just yeah. be warned. Right. Like you're going to see it long before. To me, the real marker is being at Fenway Park at the 25.2-mile yeah. Uh, yeah. marker.
0: And the baseball game is just letting out, and the crowds are starting to filter out and towards cheer for the marathoners. Right. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Um, all right, man, final thoughts on the uh, on the Boston Marathon?
1: Yes. Another thing to think about is the weather at Boston. Ah, yes, thank you so for that. Because, tell you- because cause that affected you last year. I would say it's affected me probably every year except for 2014. Okay. Um, and I took care of that myself. I, I was going to say. Took I, mad, take, I took in my own hands 2014, it one. was irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I could have been downhill on roller skates and still right. blown that one. Right. Um, 2015, it was a driving rain. I don't know what the exact temperature was, but I can tell you it was cold. Like, literally, I finished the race, and they were grabbing people, throwing them in wheelchairs, and running them indoors because it was like a Like, almost every runner had some kind of, like, hypothermic chill at the end of that race. It was cold. I mean, it was... The actual temperature was, like, high 30s, low 40s, and we were running into a headwind with a driving rain. Not a drizzle, but, like, a driving in-your-face, I can't even look up without a hat-type rain. Gross. Um, Two years later, it's, like, 76 degrees, and I got sunburned at the start. Right. So when you make your goals for for boston i would say you need to have about a five minute range or so Mm -hmm. and no you can't really tell what what exactly your goal is going to be within that range until you are at the starting line yeah and that's not very comforting for if if this is your first one but you really need to do that like i remember last year we had our big group there and i had kind of my range and i I told people at the start i said we're gonna have to Make this at the end of the range. We're yeah. gonna have to make our goal push your goal back three to right. f- your ideal goal back three to five minutes, right. and that does not sound like that's not a great rah rah speech to give it a starting line, <laughs> but it was the right move. Yeah, people who did not adjust their goal pace yeah. blew up because it was hot, yeah. and as you know, a hot marathon has. I mean, when, when the Forget temperature's that high, it. yeah, you're not gonna run your best. You're Forget not gonna, and it. unless you have a very soft PR, you're not gonna run a PR. Right. Right. And then along those same lines, I would say if this is your first Boston Marathon, well, okay. So, so I'm gonna so on the okay. weather, just
0: to kind of throw out real quick, just just to give a positive example. Um, mm-hmm. In 2011, mm-hmm. uh, there was a tailwind, mm-hmm. um, and the winner, a guy named Jeffrey Mutai, ran 2:03.02, mm-hmm. um, and had to outkick the second place guy, right. and then Ryan Hall, the American, I want to say it was third or fourth. Um and he ran two oh four he ran under two oh five, he ran two oh four, which mm-hmm. was his PR by several minutes, by two or three minutes. Um, and so that was like the perfect day weather wise. And so 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 lest you think that we're we're describing oh the weather's gonna be bad so you're not gonna get your PR, the weather might be yeah brilliant and you're going to pr you know you'll, you'll be five minutes in front of your fastest goal so anyway, right. so, so 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 it cuts both ways as far as the weather goes you know like like they say in many places they say in new england if you don't like the weather wait an hour um you know particularly in the middle of april it's just a very fickle time of year that's the other thing too i
1: remember in i think it was 2016 i could be remembering wrong the whole weekend we were there with the family it was freezing on the day of the race it was hot <laughs> so I mean you almost can't even predict based on what your trip up is like or what the weekend before is like right um and so uh yeah so be prepared for all types of weather be prepared to wear a hoodie to the starting line when you're waiting in Athlete's Village yeah. and be prepared to be almost stripped down to nothing at, uh-huh. at Athlete's Village right um and, and bring bring enough clothing to um cover yourself for, for both scenarios uh uh-huh. And then along those same lines, I would say if this is your first Boston Marathon, it is logistically a very hard race. It's a very exciting race. I would almost recommend going in with a soft goal rather than a hard goal Mm -hmm. because you really want to enjoy the experience. You you may not necessarily be able to get to do this again. And it really is a unique experience. It is one that... Will not disappoint as long as you don't bonk too hard or end up in a you know medical tent or something. So I would highly which, recommend. Which you won't if you follow our advice. Right, right.
0: Um, <laughs> Hit rewind, listen to it all over again,
1: and you have nothing to worry about. Um, and it really is special. I mean, it's. I, I, I've heard. I've talked to so many people who've said, "Yeah, I, I went to my first Boston, and I was gonna PR." And then I didn't, and I left unsatisfied with the race. And that really kind of put a damper on the whole experience. I would really recommend not doing that if this is your first one. Go, learn what Boston's about, take in the atmosphere, and enjoy it. Right on. Thanks, Patrick. Hey, thanks, George. Thanks for bringing your experience to
0: bear here. And good luck to everybody in Boston. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George at George at ITLcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, Patrick at ITLcoaching.com. You can send us an email at Pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at ITLcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITO Coaching and Performance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel, Blue and on Instagram, Instagram.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody, on behalf of Patrick Ollander. This is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.